Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Euh, dites donc, Nadège, comment aviez-vous recruté le nouveau si rapidement la dernière fois Bah, LinkedIn. Ah bon, parce que là, j'ai besoin de toute urgence d'un ingénieur en IA. Alors, où est-ce qu'on peut le trouver Bah, LinkedIn. Mais j'ai pas le temps de voir mille candidats, moi. Comment on va faire Bah, LinkedIn. Bah, 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 bah. Vu l'urgence, vous êtes vraiment confiante, Nadège Bah, oui. Avec 8 personnes recrutées par minute sur LinkedIn, pour tous vos recrutements, il y a, bah, LinkedIn. Pour en savoir plus, rendez-vous sur linkedin.com slash je recrute. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. I'm David Hepworth. This week's podcast is all travel-related. We're going to be hearing from Kate Mossman about how she went cruising with a load of country rock fans and from a man who was grounded by volcanic ash and inspired to put together an entire magazine about the experience. But first, the writer and comedian Dom Jolly has just published The Dark Tourist, which is about his trips to Iran, North Korea, Cambodia... Chernobyl, another unlikely holiday destinations. Of course, as regular listeners to this podcast will know, places like these are very familiar to our own Fraser Lurie. So when Dom came in earlier today, they started off by swapping travellers' tales. The weirdest thing was the International Hall of Friendship, when we had to queue up right. and go and see the Full wax effigy. Yeah, but to see the wax effigy of the leader. Yeah. And we all had to bow and they straightened our ties that we weren't wearing. It was just very weird. So we were recording already, Fraser? We are recording already. So we're already <laughs> started. Um, and, uh, and Dom Jolly and Fraser Lurie, the, being the two, two people in London who visited North Korea, <laughs> I know, I'm, swapping I'm, notes. I'm really annoyed, actually. It's my, it's my thing that I'm the only person I know who's been to North Korea, and suddenly I meet another one. I'm sorry about <laughs> yeah. that. Anyway, so Dom's written a book called The Dark Tourist, Sightseeing in the World's Most Unlikely Holiday Destinations, of which more in a moment. First of all, you've got to tell that story that you relate in this book about being in a car with Robert Smith at The Cure. Oh, God, I've had so many bad experiences with Robert Smith. I grew up, I was a goth, and Robert Smith was my hero, I have to admit it. And uh, when I did, after Trigger Happy, I did a mock documentary on my life, and I was obviously, the first thing anyone seems to do when they have a comedy hit is, let's see how many famous people we can pull into our next project, and it normally ruins it. But anyway, I thought, there was a scene where I was getting married, and I thought, uh, could we get Robert Smith in? I said, oh, I'd like Robert Smith to be my best man. It was really, we were doing it on the fly. So they ring up Robert Smith, and it turns out he's a Trig Happy fan, so I'm so chuffed. And he agrees to come in. And then I have a panic, because I haven't seen him for ages, you know, in public. And I think, what if he's cut all his hair off, not wearing makeup, no one recognises him. But I don't want to ring him up and say, you know, is, are you still looking like that? So then we ring up and say, will Robert need a makeup person? And they go, no, he does his own. We're like, excellent, yes. still Robert Smith. So he turns up. 
and I am so starstruck. But he's brilliant. He's really cool because he's friendly but still keeps a bit of aloofness. And we're, we're on our way to the shoot, and he goes, do you want to come in my car? I go, yeah, okay. So I get in his car. It's quite a big Merc, and there's a driver, and we're driving there. And I'm trying to be cool and sort of talking about stuff, but thinking, I can't believe I'm in the car of Robert Smith. Anyway, I'm thinking about it so much that we get to Maribyrn Registry Office where we're filming this scene, and it's on the Maribyrn Road, and I'm so excited. I open the door on the side to Maribyrn Road, and a lorry just takes the door off. Like, <laughs> full. An literally the literally door. Literally takes the door off. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see Robert Smith. Not only am I, like, so embarrassed, incredible, but also Robert Smith is thinking, oh, my God, is he trying to do a trigger happy here on me like that? And I'm desperately trying to tell him, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. Looking for hidden cameras. But then it gets even worse, because then the next time I meet him, I, he plays on a, on a pilot show I did, and the band comes on. And afterwards, he says, oh, this is such a laugh. I haven't been up in London for ages. Let's go out for a drink. So I'm like, yeah, sure. And I think, where do I take Robert Smith? So we go to the pub. It's all brilliant. Pub closes. And he goes, let's keep going. And I'm thinking, oh, be trendy. Where do I take him? And then I go, you want to come back to mine? He goes, yeah, brilliant. So we're going back to mine. And just as we get there, I suddenly remember that I've got these pictures all around my house of me looking like him. It's a bit like that Alan Partridge moment. So I literally run upstairs and I'm ripping all these things off. So it's never been very cool. So what did you do? Make him a cup of coffee and well, uh, play him a record? No, my wife was asleep. And she goes, oh, what time is this? I go, Rumors Smith's in the kitchen. She goes, what? I go, Rumors Smith's in the kitchen. She goes, oh, bugger off. And she comes in. She goes, oh, hello. And then she goes back to bed because she's Canadian, so I didn't like the cure. And then in the end, we just got more and more drunk. And I was thinking, this is amazing, he's here. And about four in the morning, I started to think, I wish Robert Smith would go. I've got to work. It was really weird. That's a, you, that's a film, though. Uh, no, he left in the end, but okay. it was it was brilliant. So yeah. I've got to go back. Yeah, the, the car door, a Mercedes car but door. A big fortified. It looked like Robert Smith was in a bulletproof <laughs> car. I don't know why. He's being attacked by a rival. The door cops. completely came yeah, off and yeah. went trailing yeah. down the Euston Road. Yeah, and that's it was terrible because we had to keep filming. So all the time we were filming. Occasionally there'd be a break and we'd look out rather guiltily and there would be this driver sort of distraughtly staring at his... <laughs> I felt so bad. You, you touch upon this occasionally in the book uh, yeah. about, about the kind of glory days of television when budgets were huge yeah. and you're allowed to do things that probably nobody would be allowed to do now. Yeah. You talk about, what is it, you're flying around the world with a film crew to just appoint a particular well, actually, site. There's this new show, uh, Carl Pilkington, going an idiot abroad that Ricky Gervais done. I think he's nicked my idea because I got the BBC to pay me. I thought it'd be funny at the beginning of every one of these shows I did for BBC One called World Shut Your Mouth, just to go to the Seven Wonders of the World. So we went to the Taj Mahal, and you get there, stand there at dawn, wait for a woman to walk in next to me, and then I go, ah, the Taj Mahal. And she said something like, yeah, it's so ethereal. And there's a bit of a pause, and I go, that is shit. Because <laughs> it was a joke we had in the van that every time we saw something really nice, we'd just say, that is shit. But what I loved about it was that not only was it just horrible and awful, but... I thought, to make it really funny, this is how weird it was at the time, I thought, to make it really funny, if we went to India to film that, and then because we were there, we filmed other stuff, it would be cheating. So we only filmed that. So, luckily, so you flew to India I just to point at the Taj Mahal? We went to the India, Pyramids, <laughs> Great Wall of China, Grand Canyon, uh, the... Guggenheim in Bilbao, I'm never quite sure why and we did five wonders basically Daily Mail never picked up on it, but surely the greatest waste of the licence people's money ever. Well those days have gone I know, for, for everybody So what was the idea behind The Dark Tourist? Had you already been to these places? Uh, well, Explain been, what the, the concept of the book is I've been to Lebanon, no the concept of the book is obviously most people know me for sort of dressing as a squirrel and being in Trig Happy, but <laughs> it is like I'm not a comedian trying to be serious but kind of that is quite a small part of my life and the rest of my life I grew up in Lebanon 
I've always been into politics. I studied politics at university. I was a diplomat briefly. I've worked at ITN as a political journalist. So kind of that's a big part of my life. And since Trigger Happy kind of opened doors for me, I've been doing loads of writing for the Sunday Times, going off travelling. But unfortunately, although it's a brilliant job travel writing for newspapers, they have to sell holidays. So when I suggest Turkmenistan or North Korea, they're like, yeah, I don't know how many people are going to buy it. So I had all these destinations I wanted to go to, and basically I needed someone to pay me to go there. And my favourite book ever is called Holidays in Hell by P.J. O'Rourke, which was written in the 80s. And as far as I'm concerned, he had the best job ever, foreign correspondent for Rolling Stone. It just doesn't get better. And he went off at the time to a whole lot of places you'd never go to, like El Salvador, Lebanon, Nicaragua for a holiday. And I just remember thinking it was so brilliant. He just stumbled in, wrote an essay... And kind of got it pretty right. So, so that's what I wanted to do. So, born in Lebanon? Yeah. Lived in Le- why? Parents posted there? Oh, uh, very long story. My, uh, my grandfather went there to, st- I think he was a consul or something, and then he basically, he got arrested by the Ottomans in the First World War and was kept in a crusader castle for, a, for the whole First World War. And then when he was released, he went back to... Uh, Beirut, and I think they just got the bug. They loved it there. Right, yeah, right. So right. it's very odd. So you, you you spent your childhood shuttling between there and, and very the UK. schizophrenic. I'd be uh, yeah holidays in a civil war, and then boarding school in Oxford talking about pony club. But right. I always had a very good what I did in my holidays essay. Yeah. You know. So it's, it's quite a straightforward book, you know, sightseeing in the world's most unlikely holiday destinations. Fraser and I were talking about this morning and said uh, it's strange that it doesn't have a gimmick, like taking a fridge or, you know, yeah, playing know. tennis with... They, I'm surprised publishers nowadays well, this uh, is, don't want more of it. I mean, I was offered a TV gimmick. show to do with this and I was really determined to do a book because, uh, A, if you go with a TV crew, although it's really nice, you end up getting drunk with the cameraman... And you don't really go anywhere, whereas on your own... And you're expected to perform, I imagine, as well. Well, I don't mind performing, I'm fine with that. (laughs) But it's kind of, I wanted to go out and really do a proper travel book. But also, there is a thing about celebs doing travel shows. You know, it's kind of, from the age of two, Martin Clunes has been fascinated by forests. Martin (laughs) Clune on forests. So I wanted to write a book to show that I was serious about it, and I really am. It's the thing I love the most. I always go off to weird places. Right, so so take us through some of the places you've been here. I went skiing in Iran... Right. Which was fabulous. And that was your first time in Iran? That was my first time in Iran. I'd always wanted to go to Iran, but I kind of didn't really have a peg. I just always thought, what, what am I going to do when I get to Iran? And I was right, because when you get to Tehran, it's a pretty ugly city, It's a actually. horrible city. It's really polluted, horrible. It's... But it has two of the best dark tourist things ever, which is the um, Death to the USA building. Yes. And they used to have eight of them, uh, which is just a huge building showing the... Stars and Stripes, but with skulls and rockets, Death of the USA. They had eight of them, but the government closed seven because they said it discouraged tourism. <laughs> and then the old uh, embassy, the American embassy, which they, where they took all the hostages in the 79 revolution, obviously the Americans don't use it anymore, so they've turned it into the Museum of the Great Satan, which is just the best Did you name get to the war museum. cemetery? I didn't get to the war cemetery. That's a fantastic. It's, it's acres and acres and acres, and everyone who died in the Iran-Iraq war is buried there, and they all have glass cabinets con- containing things they were... Eat that meant a lot to them in their life or, Ooh, or they're that. with them when they died so there's water bottles with bullet holes through them and it's extraordinary oh, so every, all the dead all the Iranian dead yeah. from that conflict are in that in one, one place, place yeah. not scattered and there were a lot of them as well there were a lot of them the carpet museum is quite good did you go there? no I went to the uh, carpet museum in Ashgabat in Turkmenistan oh so. ok well, I'll be going to that, I hope. <laughs> so it, it, the idea I get in Iran is uh, from your, your account here that there's kind of two different Irans. There's Tehran, and then as soon as you start getting outside, it's very different, a lot, a lot looser. Well, certainly where I went skiing, because obviously I think if you're a 
fundamentalist Iranian, skiing probably isn't your bag sort of thing. So I think it is a way for a lot of people. As my guide said to me, mullahs don't snowboard, so you can kind of get away. I think to be really simplistic about Iran, and it is, essentially the Middle East tends to be quite a radical population run by normally pro-Western puppet governments. Iran's the complete flip. It's run by nutters, frankly, and the population, most of them, just want to get on with a normal life. They're quite westernised, incredibly civilised. You know, they all want to live in Tarangelis, which is the sort of suburb of LA that's Iranian, and they're brilliant. Really, really nice people. So, I had a great time there. So, so here you have to negotiate the kind of uh, the subtleties of what you can get away with and what you can't, because well, you talk about, you end up at a party, don't you, here? Yeah, I you quickly learned that Iran was a bit like school, really, that you... There were rules, very strict rules, but actually, everyone... Everyone was bending them. You just have to sort of know how to get away with them. And obviously the one thing I did think was that there wouldn't be much to drink in Iran. Uh, even when we arrived, BMI seemed to give you quite a lot of free champagne, even though I was in economy. <laughs> so almost almost as a last drink, yeah. And yeah. then just as we landed, I spilt it on my trousers. So I went into Tehran Airport hoping they'd think I was incontinent rather than <laughs> champagne all over me. Reeking of booze. Yeah. But anyway, so I met these Iranians when I, they were really chuffed and uh, that I was there and we really got on and I said it was a bit odd that it was the first time I'd ever skied and not had a drink. And they all looked at me and said, oh, don't worry about that. And when the waiter disappeared, produced these huge 1.5-litre bottles of what they called pizza. And it's basically moonshine. They all make their own moonshine. And if you want to get drunk in Tehran, there are people driving around on mopeds, who I suppose we'd call dealers, but he's called the pizza man. And you have a party, you ring him up and say, I want three pizzas. It was amazing. Did you feel uh, afraid at any point? Never, no. not in the slightest, no. Right. Most of these places aren't really dangerous. That's what, I mean, I don't want to they're tell they're anyone that, because obviously the whole point of my book is like, <laughs> it's me with an AK-47, it looks really tough. But I'm a born coward, so quite genuinely, it sounds like a joke, but I've been more nervous in Sirencester, near where I live, at 11 o'clock at night, yeah, walking through a market town than random, any of these Random places. drunks are a Well, more, it's just, more there's an air of thuggery and violence at night in Britain that you do not find anywhere in the world. I had I've this fan, uh, fantastic experience when I went to Tehran. I went via train from London, so it took sort of seven oh, days. Nice. last three days was across Turkey and to Iran, and I was sharing a, a, car, a compartment with three Iranian guys, two of whom could speak no English, and one of them knew about a thousand words, 950 of which were footballers. It's always that. So he'd poke me in the uh, middle, in the, you know, I'd be dozing, and he'd poke me in the side and go, Mark Bosnich, can he go with you? Manchester United, <laughs> and then everyone thumbs well, we up. We got to uh, Tehran, and he, he made it known that he wanted me to go and visit his family, and I said, oh, yeah, why not? And his brother was a taxi driver, and he took me there. They live 50 kilometres away. <laughs> yeah. And I, I get this enormous feast, and then he drives me back to the hotel. And this is the level of hospitality you do not get here. No, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. kidnapping in England. Football is one international language the other thing that you refer to quite a bit in here is heavy metal it well it's hard I th- rock i think know? we all know that there's certain areas of eastern europe where that's what a weird euro beat does but in for some reason i mean growing up in lebanon i think the only bands i remember coming i think the police came once actually but iron maiden played in lebanon and and that kind of to me slightly crap heavy metal they've always loved and they still love so in iran i'm driving up uh, with my guide up into the Alborz mountains and he's playing Bruce Dickinson's solo album, which I have to say <laughs> escaped me. I hadn't heard it. But I realised it was Bruce Dickinson because he heard his voice. And it's all that usual nonsense about swords and monsters and all this crap. So I'm listening to it thinking, God, this is ruining my, you know, Tehran, ex- my Iranian experience. And he turns to me and he goes, oh, Bruce Dickinson, you like? I go, eh, 
you know. <laughs> he's okay. He goes, he is a great poet. He's like Sufi poet. I go, yeah, I so. Maybe we're really underrating him. I mean, I know he fenced for England and is an airline pilot, but Sufi poet, I don't know. <laughs> so North Korea is is the kind of the penny black of dark tourism, isn't it? You know, yeah. it's, it's very difficult to get into. Isn't That's it? the first thing. Yeah, so it's come a bit via of a, China, don't yeah. you? And also, they only allow thousand thousand five hundred people in a year. So although we were noting this morning, and shouldn't go without noting, is that the Middlesbrough ladies football team are visiting there in the next week to play two games. Well, that's... Because the North Korean team were based in Middlesbrough in 1960. That is a huge thing there, weirdly. The, the sort of only heroes they have there that I was aware of, apart from the great leader, were, were, were their 1966 football yeah. team. And there was this peculiar affinity with Middlesbrough because they stayed there. And everyone really liked them, apparently, in, in Middlesbrough. Oh, they're, they're very quite popular. Big yeah. deal. So, yeah, Middlesbrough's the sort so of... So there's still, they're still that, that link there. Twinned with Pyongyang. It's but still anyway, the thing so keeping us from being mute by them. You know, this... Entente cordiale with uh, with Middlesbrough. <laughs> so you go into North Korea with one particular travel firm. Is this? Yeah, they're called the Corio Tours. Did you go yeah, with Corio Tours? I did. Yeah, yeah the, and they're fantastic. There are other people who do it, but they're the guys who've been doing it for longest, and I think probably best. Did you have Simon? Uh, I'm a first tried Simon. Yeah, yes. Simon's fantastic. <laughs> this is yeah. one particular. He's one man. No, he's, 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 a, he's a genius. He is a genius. He <laughs> yeah. also does Turkmenistan. Actually, he's yeah. a he's a dart tourist specialist, isn't he? He, he is. is yeah. yeah. So I mean, North Korea is is strange in all kinds of different ways, isn't it? Because well, you, to me, all you land the... there and they make an announcement saying the great leader pretty much welcomes you. Oh, personally. it's insane. The whole thing is is insane. But also, with the whole point of this book was that all these places I went to, Chernobyl, Iran, Lebanon, you kind of assume it's going to be weird. But they all were better than I thought they yeah. were, apart from North Korea, which I still loved. But it was a hundred times weirder than I could have possibly... It's completely otherworldly, I it's, found. It, there's it, a film called Torn Curtain by uh, Hitchcock, and that's the closest I can describe it. I think he's filming supposedly in East Germany before the, you know, with the Cold Wars at its height. And it's a bit like that. It feels like all the main colours have been taken out of the palette. Everything's very grey, apart from North Korean women wear these incredible wedding dresses, you know, traditional dresses. So they're these sort of patches of beauty... But God, vivid a, greens and pinks. It's such an ugly place. It's a, it's like a ten day tour, an intensive ten day tour of the centre of Coventry, like building by building, which would kill you. But because it's so weird and you're in such a strange place, it's fascinating. Everything, the Museum of Lathes, I loved. Of it was lathes. Of lathes. Nothing hidden there. It's a museum <laughs> full of lathes. <laughs> I didn't brilliant. go there. So ah, I you missed that. Out. But you did the mausoleum, didn't you? Yeah, the mausoleum is extraordinary. Did, they... you, did you do the International Hall of Friendship? Yes. Which yes. is where they keep all the gifts given to them by visitors. My favourite being a stuffed alligator standing on two legs holding a tray of drinks from the Sandinista government, <laughs> and then a rhino horn that looked as though it had been physically ripped out the rhino by Mugabe. It's amazing. Yeah. But here you have to... You're obviously conducted around by official guides and you can't just wander. Uh, and the whole thing is a propaganda exercise in... in whether you believe it or not, yeah. the great leader did this, and, and you know, you're expected that. to believe that he hit holes in one on a golf course, yeah, yeah. and God knows whatever else he did. How do you keep a straight face in that kind of It's uh, really setup? interesting, that whole propaganda thing, because obviously you go in there thinking, I'm going to be hit with all the propaganda, and, and you keep thinking, oh, you're telling us that, and obviously that's rubbish. The first thing you notice is that you assume that the moment the guide disappears, people will come up and say, help! And actually you realise, whether they're brainwashed or not, they're not like other countries. They genuinely do not like foreigners. They don't smile at you. They, they really they don't have any sort of interest in your life, particularly. Secondly, I think there is an element where there's a lot of misunderstanding. For instance, when we went on the tube, uh, we got there. Now, I don't know how they did it. We, arra- we arrive on the platform. This tube train arrives, and the last 
uh, carriage has been cleaned and is empty for us. So obviously part we're thinking, well, this is propaganda. We're supposed to believe that all you know, uh, carriages are like this and clean. But actually, that was them being polite. Yes. They wanted us to be. But, so there are misunderstandings in that yeah. way. And as I said to, to Simon, you know, well, it's weird. We never speak to any Koreans. He goes, we can speak to them, but you can't speak Korean. That's why you can't speak to them. So we could have done. And, and even if you could, they probably wouldn't register there. I read a great book about a guy who lived there for a while, and he said that if you ever spoke Korean to a local, they wouldn't react because it, to them it was like a tree speaking, speaking Korean. The fact that you were foreign oh, really? That's and hilarious. language just didn't make any sense <laughs> well, it freaked at all. them out. Completely, yeah. yeah. You mentioned in here, I think, well, possibly when you're going around your museum and where the, the gifts have been given, the, yeah. that, the conversation about Ceausescu, which oh, they yeah. the guide. Go on, that, was the, that was the way that we were coming out of, yeah, we were coming out of the weird bit of the International Hall Friendship, where we all we'd seen all these gifts, trains from Stalin, all sorts of stuff, and we suddenly get to this door, and everyone starts to look a bit serious, and we're all literally told to stand in a line, and they started sort of straightening our ties, not that we were wearing ties, but we didn't know what was happening, and then these doors open, we walk in, and there, on this sort of moonscape, is a wax effigy of the leader, and we all had to stand as though it was him, and bow, so we're all giggling, I mean, it was embarrassing, but it was clearly serious, and then we were taken out, so as we come out the door, we're all a bit relieved, and we're in this corridor, and it's just a sort of like a who's who of baddies who've <laughs> all come to visit the dear leader. Chris Patton being one, not a great baddie, but one of them was Ceausescu. And I looked at the date, and I think it was 1990 or whatever, and it, it was about six months before he was shot. So I said to our guide, ah, Ceausescu. He goes, yeah, Romania. I go, just days before he was shot. And he just looked at me completely blank. And I suddenly realized he had no idea that Ceausescu had been shot. And he thought, then he thought, am I trying to trick him? It was so weird. They had no... And he just went, oh, forget it. No, no big deal. I'm sure he's still around. You know. It clearly is an extraordinary place. Well, th- this book that I borrowed from you, Fraser, what's yeah. this one called? Uh, the, um, the one about the woman who spent the time in, the, in North Korea during the famine. The American writer. And the Barbara Demick book. Which is a fantastic book, where uh, she, she convinces you that when the great leader died, people didn't believe that he could die. Yeah. yeah. You know, it had gone that far. It wasn't just amazing, normal uh, adulation of political footage of uh, crowds reacting to his death, which is oh, it's uh, manic. just staggering. It's worse than when Bross broke up, yes. isn't it? It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's that level. Yeah, but it's genuinely hysterical. Yeah, in the, you know, true sense of the yeah, word. Yeah, and a, it is just little things like everyone wears a little pin badge yeah. of him, and and it's just odd. Like when you start, you think on the plane, you thought, oh, that's funny, they all wear that, and then you think, oh my god, they all wear that, yeah. and a lot of the area around everywhere, there's sort of little uh, speakers everywhere playing this slightly tinned, eerie music constantly. So you're sort of always busy, and then there's people cutting grass with scissors and doing mass synchronised dances, and there's this feeling that just keep everyone busy and they won't notice. Did and also, you find out why people were cutting the grass with scissors? Because no. Because you referred not, to this. I, I didn't at all. They, weren't, they obviously didn't, they weren't very keen on us asking. I mean, I really figured it was just... It Job was a creation. Sort of, yeah, keep bu- people busy. Give them a lawnmower, it's going to be over in a second. Yes. <laughs> it's also unusual to go to a city where there's no advertising anywhere. I quite like... Well, there was a so couple of advertising. There's, 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 a, there's a car advert, I think. No, it? the advertising I saw was stamping on American GI's heads. OK, so yeah. There was that sort of advertising. <laughs> but there's no commercial advertising No, which was lovely. Yeah. And the only times I've been... When I, I, I lived in Prague just after the revolution, or the, the Velvet Revolution, and that was the first time for six months there was no McDonald's and no advertising. And it is weird, because you're so used to this assault on your senses. So that was yeah. quite nice. So but then... then you did some of your dark tourism in the United States. Yeah, I did. I mean, that one it was slightly odd, because obviously, compared to the other places, uh, unless your worldview is very left-wing, you know, the, the United States isn't that dark. But I've always been fascinated by assassinations, and, and that is probably the most dark tourist, actually, of my interest. So 
I was always fascinated by JFK, so I thought I'd go and see the JFK site. And then I thought, actually, I love a road trip. So we kind of, I did JFK and then Martin Luther King. You're never more than 200 miles away in America from a <laughs> decent assassination site. So I did Martin Luther King, popped in to see Elvis, who was technically a self-assassination. I did find out, actually, that, do you know what Elvis died of, which I love? Everyone, we all know he died on the loo, but what was he doing before that? Turned out he had a rackets court. You know, rackets, that weird yeah, yeah. sort of yuppie squash court. And he got really into it, and he built a court in, in the grounds of Gracelands. And he'd been playing rackets just before he toppled over. So technically, Elvis died of a sports injury, which I just <laughs> thought was really weird. <laughs> You've got a fantastic picture in here, of, which I've never seen before, of Dealey Plaza, yeah. where Kennedy was shot, with showing the X. It's extraordinary. With the book depository? Yeah. When I went to, to Dealey Plaza, I, I suppose in my mind, I've seen it so many times, I assumed it would be sort of sealed off. But it's still, you know, it's, just a normal... spooky, isn't it? It's normal thoroughfare. Spooky. And it just showed, that's when I knew I was a dark tourist. In town, Dallas, that day, was an exhibition of all the stuff in King Tutankhamun's um, uh, tomb. Well, they called it King Tut, cause, just to simplify it. And, you know, that is amazing. I spent 15 minutes in there, but I spent four hours hanging around on this road. And the only sign that something's happened there is a little sign that says this is a place of national importance. But on this road, in between traffic, under the, there's two crosses, one where the first bullet, if you believe the official yeah, version, yeah. hits, and one where the second one It's very but odd. But you can go into the book depository, can't you? Well, the one thing all around Dealey Plaza is just loads of nutters, all different conspiracy theories, who all believe Mafia shot him, Frank Sinatra shot him, you know, Marilyn Monroe shot him. The one thing they all agree on is you shouldn't go to the sixth floor book depository because that's the official museum, and not only will you be put on a database, which seems to be the worst thing that could happen to them if you enter, but also they'll give you the official line so i said obviously i won't go there and i went straight there yeah. and uh it was crazy They're, they've sealed off the corner where oswald shot presumably and then there were boxes but also there was no photography but i'm like well fuck that i'm obviously going to get a picture out of the window so i take a picture out of the window one along and this woman appears and says sir uh, there's no photography i go oh, i'm sorry i didn't know she goes no you're gonna have to erase that i go what she goes you're gonna have to erase that and i didn't have this in iran so i said i'm not erasing it so she calls security so i end up running to the lift just as Lee Harvey Oswald would have done after taking my shot. And I run through the gift shop where they're selling models of the uh, president's car. It was very odd. The one thing I didn't manage to do, the reason I went there in the first place, was there was a rumour, and it was true, that a guy had set up a tour, which is a great dark tourist tour. He'd built an original version of the Kennedy car. He picks you up at Love Field, where Kennedy landed. You go on the original drive, and as you get to Dealey Plaza, speakers play the gunshots... You speed up and you end up at the hospital where the president is dead. And I thought, this is brilliant. So I tried to find this guy, but he'd been closed down because apparently he was an alcoholic. So several times after the shots, he'd stop and get some booze on the way to the <laughs> hospital and he'd crash the car twice, so he wasn't around. So you clearly so found, you clearly found yeah. that you're not alone in your interest in, in going to these kind of places. Definitely not. Assassinations are a big deal, I think, in America. They mean a lot to them. I, th I think Iran probably is different. I don't know. It's different. I called it dark tourist. But I mean, technically, dark tourism means going to places of death and, you know, it's kind of Auschwitz and stuff, which I'm not into that level of, of, yeah. of horror. You went to Chernobyl. Chernobyl was amazing. I mean, really fascinating. Fraser's been to Chernobyl. Yeah, oh, Fraser, you bastard. <laughs> I mean, he might as well come and done it, wouldn't no, he? Keep us tell us about Chernobyl. <laughs> I love Chernobyl. Did you love Chernobyl? Uh, yeah, Pripyat, the town Pripyat that's was been incredible. Uh, You don't have evacuated. to play Call of Duty, do you? No. You see, I, play I, yeah. the, I play this game called Call of Duty, and uh, when I got to Pripyat, this evacuated ghost town, which was incredible, and you're wandering around, I just thought, I know this place really well. And I finally said to the guide, is that the swimming pool? And he went, yes. How do you know? And I said, 
I think I play this. Like, and when I got back, of course, Call of Duty 4 is all based in Pripyat. I don't know how they've done it, but I knew the town better than him. I knew sniper levels and stuff like that. It was incredible. <laughs> but an amazing snapshot of Soviet Russia, this town. Because it was all evacuated, 50,000 people gone. Very, and, very quickly. And it's like the Mary Celeste, you know, and they're still... And you wander around the school and the school oh, books everywhere, creepy. everything's coated in dust. The creepiest it's... thing in the school was there was a poster on the wall. Three days before the thing exploded, they had a, um, a civil defence drill to teach the kids what to do in the event of a nu- uh, NATO nuclear attack. So the irony was pretty awful. The most interesting point about Chernobyl, I found, was that it was, in a way, responsible for perestroika, because it took... Gorbachev about six days to be told that this thing had gone off. So firstly, he just said, we can't live in a country where a nuclear bomb basically goes off and no one tells me. But also the cost of sarcophagizing it and, you know, cleaning it all up was so huge. It was kind of the final economic straw that broke the camel's back. So there was a good part of Chernobyl, but... You see, I think this kind of tourism is going to become more popular, actually. And it's, it's part of, you know, I've always had this idea of uh, starting a company called Low Expectation Holidays. Nice. Where you yeah. could just, you know, because I, I, you know, if I you go somewhere sunny and, it, and it's not sunny, <laughs> yeah. you're immediately disappointed. Yeah, I agree. If you go around the First World War battlefields, you expect it to be raining yeah. and muddy. You know, yeah. And if it's not raining for a while, well, you, you want it to be bleak, don't you? Yeah, yeah, you you, sort you, of you do. want that full some experience. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's also, I don't know if it's largely a male thing, just this idea of mooching is. around and, and thinking, this happened here. But yeah. do you whatever know, that's it is, what it is. Whether it's the Abbey Road zebra do you know what? That is what it is. Weird. In a funny way, I realised that's what, why I was doing it, because I couldn't understand, was this morbid, why am I doing it? And it is exactly like the Abbey Road thing. It's, in a sense, like being a political... Uh, in, this, in this sense, it's like a political fan. So just in the same way you'd go to Abbey Road, I went to where John Lennon was shot, and it meant... It, it, to me, when I go to these places, it, they are things that kind of were big parts of my life, and by going there, you do somehow connect, and I can't explain why... But there weren't any girls on any of these. You're quite right. It's not the place to go to pick up women. I'll put it that way. <laughs> no, no, no. I, can see, I can see it growing as an area. Anyway, it's the dark tourist, uh, sightseeing in the world's most unlikely holiday destinations by Dom Jolly. Uh, out now. Where are you going next, Dom? Uh, Bristol. <laughs> Tonight. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm actually going to Turkmenistan, but of course. Crazy. I've already been there, haven't you? <laughs> How is it? It's great. It's uh, it's it's. Uh, what's a shame is that uh, when Nyazov died, who was the crackpot yeah. dictator who went a couple of years ago, he had a magnificent statue of him in the town centre, which kind of looked like a rocket ship with a revolving golden statue. Didn't it revolve top. towards the sun? He was always looking sun. at the sun. Yeah. yeah, and I think they've dismantled they that have in the last few down, weeks. Yeah. yeah, that's oh, like when I went. How disappointing! Yeah. It's really annoying. Fast. They just don't understand. No, they don't. <laughs> the, the appeal that's of the that kind of thing you keep. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You don't get rid of that. That was their liberty. Yeah, the word. A magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. So, Kate, Kate, you're known for taking holidays that are um, mm. very often got a musical twist to them and yeah. not the usual holidays. Give us examples of them I've you've done, been doing in the past. Well, I've done things like go to you know festivals in Colorado and stuff like that and um, went over, obviously, to see Glenn Campbell in on the West Coast for a night, a night and a half. Um, but this was, a, I just went to... Um, Something a bit different, which was a country music cruise, effectively. A country music <laughs> cruise. Yeah, which left from Tampa and went down to Grand Cayman. Tampa in Florida, yeah. so it's going to the, well, the Caribbean? Yeah, four days. It was really short. Basically, you're stuck on the boat for um, a day and a half either way, and then you got off on uh, in Georgetown for about four hours and then got back on the boat again. And it was like it was one of those ships that was the size of a block of flats, sort of five storeys high, three water parks on top and everything. And then three water parks? Three water parks. <laughs> So it uh, flumes and all that kind flumes, of... Flumes, yes, uh, slides and things. And then this kind of very, very 
tiny swimming pool in the middle where most of the um, the guests sat for the whole time actually in the pool. It was really weird. I don't know what what the water must have been like by the end of it. You know, <laughs> thick soup. Um, and it was like, yeah, there was a rotating uh, list of about 20 bands on the boat. And this is something that's quite common in America. They have a Leonard Skinnerd one as well, which departs in February, which Leonard Skinnerd actually play on. Um, and then loads of other bands that look like Leonard Skinnerd support them. So it's kind of, you just get... Uh, I've seen there's some kind of soft rock one where Sticks and Aria Speedwagon and that kind of thing play. Yeah. So this is kind of aimed at boomers who are, who are now in the kind of cruise yeah. uh, demographic, aren't not, they? Not the Blue Rinse yet, but they're kind of comfortably well, on. Well, the Blue Rinse is gone, you see. Yeah. Because the Blue Rinse has been supplanted by former Leonard, you know, Leonard Skinnerd fan in 60s. That's true, they are the Blue where, Rinse, but the, the Bandana Rinse. It's, it moves on all the time, doesn't it? <laughs> You know, no, it's interesting, isn't it? Because this appears to be a case of the cruise industry adapting to you know the new demands, doesn't it? You yeah. know, so that you people want a lively rock and roll cruise. Exactly. That's the idea. No one wants to feel old. So there, I mean, there were people on there who were probably in their sort of sixties and seventies, but they were boogieing just like everybody else. And the funny, the funny thing is, I was talking to one of the organisers, and the next cruise that they're doing is not a music one; it's an exercise cruise. So there's a woman, I can't remember her name, but she leads a programme called uh, The World's Greatest Loser in America. And she's getting a load of overweight people on this cruise ship and they're heading down to um, Georgetown. And uh, basically it's going to be quite a grumpy affair because they don't serve anything apart from light beer and salad. Oh, gee, <laughs> I would fancy that. So uh, your country music cruise has got a name? It's called Sailing Southern Ground. And right. um, it's, it's not exactly country music, but it's a, um, a label that the Zac Brown Band set up. And the Zac Brown Band have sort of shot to fame in the last couple of years. He got sort of... Uh, greatest songwriter in the CMA um, awards and stuff and he's like this kind of lantern jawed small eyed guy from Georgia with a, with a cap and a huge beard and he's very sort of um, uh, support the troops and you know it's sort of it's, it's, it's kind of middle of the road music but it was like basically it was like being at a festival because you just drift from stage to stage but you're actually on this great ship at the So during the day it's a festival going on on board yeah. you can wander around and yeah. catch a bit of this act and a bit of the other one And the funny thing is that they encourage as much um fraternising as possible between the bands and the guests. So the bands would lead different activities on the boat after their shows like there's this southern rock band called Blackberry Smoke who I really like and you hate <laughs> I don't hate I laugh at them. <laughs> but anyway, go on. The, the, the most uh, comical Leonard Skinner impression type band that you could get. And they, um, yeah, they, they hosted a belly flop competition after their gig. So it's not deck coits and shuffleboard? Not exactly, but there's a flip cup drinking game that was hosted by this terrible band called um, Gaelic Storm, who are the band that was featured on the Titanic movie playing down on the, the lower deck. It's not a good omen, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Can't think of a worse way to die going down listening to Dave. So the bands have to do a certain amount of fraternising with the public. Yeah. Do the bands appear to take to this? Yes, they do because they. I think when you sign up for it, you know what you're getting yourself in for. So you you can't be one of those people that wants to sit in your your trailer, so to speak. You have to be out there talking to the fans. And the novelty wears off. I mean, these aren't sort of megastars anyway. So you kind of all eat together, and there's a hell of a lot of food anyway, and it's quite sort of. So everybody having a good time. Yeah, it was it was really good. I mean, it was it was. Um, mainly a drinking and eating binge rather than anything else. And when it got to Grand Cayman, half the boat didn't get off because, you know, the Americans have all seen the, the Caribbean before. They just want to rock. Yeah. They and they have something rock. more to eat. There's nothing wrong with rocking. 
But from a musical point of view, the, what was really good about it was that they... Uh, because the same acts would turn up in all these different combinations all the time, like one night they just took the lead singer out of six different bands, put them all on stage with an acoustic guitar, and they did this kind of pin drop sort of uh, recital of certain songs. So they really broke down the way the songs were written, and they sang them a cappella. And it was just really good, because no matter how silly some of that music is, it, it's pretty well written, and that's kind of the fun of it. Really. So, well, that sounds fantastic. What's your ideal cruise, Kate, if you were, could, could go on one? You know, the acts of your choice. Oh, God, yeah. Um, Glenn Campbell, obviously. <laughs> Probably Blackberry Smoke. John McLaughlin. <laughs> Imagine well, that. See, we've put that together. Special <laughs> a la carte. Something out of Queen, yeah. <laughs> Somebody out of Queen. Dweezil Zappa. <laughs> A guitar cruise, that would be the thing. Well, I'm sure, that, I'm sure there is one. I'm, I'm sure there is one already. I'm sure they're working on one right now. Yeah. So. <laughs> You'll be able to read Kate Mossman's full report on her cruise with the Yeehaw tendency in the November issue of The Word. Back in April, the world of international travel was severely disrupted by the ash cloud from a volcano in Iceland. Most people just sat and fumed. But magazine editor Andrew Lasowski saw it as a creative opportunity to put together and publish a one-off magazine called Stranded. I spoke to him in New York via Skype and asked him to explain how it all came together. Well, I was stuck in Dublin with my wife soon after our wedding when the volcano erupted. And we were there trying to figure out what was going on. Of course, at that time, we have to remember that nobody knew how long this ash cloud was going to last. People were talking about the last time this volcano erupted, it lasted for two years. And so we were trying to figure out what was going on around us, what we could do, whether we should go on a, a trip, whether we should turn this into an extended holiday. And basically, there were two reasons why I decided to put together a magazine about it. First of all, because I was trying to understand myself, the kinds of experiences that I was going through, and, and I realized that other people would be doing the same thing. And secondly, because I was trying to come up with something to do that wouldn't involve spending any money. <laughs> so what was your first step? The first step was to put the idea on my blog and my Twitter feed and just say, Anybody else who's a writer or an editor like me or a photographer or an illustrator who's stranded because of the volcano wants to come together or make a magazine together and give the proceeds to charity and try and explore what, what's going on with everybody in their different situations. And so, and, and so the next stage was sorry. Just uh, the the next stage was that um, it then got picked up by a couple of different blogs, and then it got picked up by more traditional media. I was interviewed on the World Service, and within 24 hours, I had more than 60 people get in touch. What sort of people got in touch with you? People from all backgrounds and in all situations, really. Somebody was stranded in Thailand uh, on a holiday trying to get home. Somebody else was trying to get out to her wedding in France. Uh, one guy was stuck in Tokyo trying to get to London. Um, another guy was a, he was a DJ who had to cancel his entire tour because he was stranded in the Far East having done one gig, uh, and he had a European tour the following week. So it was all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. And so what I did was that I asked them to tell me a little bit about who they were and and what they were doing, and then I gave each of them an assignment. Right, so they didn't suggest the things themselves, you commissioned them? Absolutely. So what sort of things did you give them to do? Well, for example, there was a, a jewellery designer who was stuck in Korea, so I asked her to make a piece of jewellery made up entirely of bus tickets and flyers and things that she finds on the street. There was a horror writer who was stuck in the UK, so I asked him to write a horror story set inside the ash cloud. 
there was a fashion journalist stranded in New York, so I asked her to create a fashion first aid kit to always carry with you in case of volcanoes in the future. Um, and somebody else told me about that she, in her travels she'd met a very cute waiter in Paris who she was meeting up with. And so I teamed her up with a photographer who was also stranded in Paris and got the two of them to tell his story. So were you doing all this via email? Yes, that's right. I was doing it via the many and varied internet cafes of Dublin. Right. So did you, you didn't actually meet any of these people? I didn't meet any of them, and that includes the art director with the project as well, a guy called Matt MacArthur. He's a Scottish art director who was stuck in the States, uh, and when he got in touch, he offered to do an illustration, but I looked at his portfolio and asked if he'd like to art direct the whole thing. We've still never even spoken on the phone. We did the entire thing via email on either sides of the Atlantic. You have literally never spoken on the phone? Never spoken on the phone. The first time we saw each other was when we, we sent the final PDF off to print, and then we took a picture of each other with a beer and sent it to each other. <laughs> so now that you've got it finished, and it took a while, obviously, to get it finished, uh, how are you proposing to disseminate it? It's available via a service called MagCloud, which is a print-on-demand magazine maker, which is a huge advantage because it means that we didn't have to invest several thousand just to get the thing printed. So people can buy it directly from their website, and also there's going to be a digital version available on the Zinio platform by the end of the month. So it's very enterprising for you. What, what does this, has this given you the confidence to do further things of this kind in the future? It's an interesting question. I, I've always been doing different projects that are created in, out of circumstance and different experiences. I also have a background in, in magazines. Uh, somebody suggested that I should go to Chile next and, and work on a magazine with the miners and the people above ground. Uh, I think he meant it as a joke, but actually the more I think about it, the more that I think that that's exactly the kind of situation like this one where people are trying to understand what's going on and, trying to, and just desperate to tell their story one way or another. So who knows? Maybe I'll be looking out for other natural disasters and going out to, to create publications that way. So what makes it a magazine rather than just a website or a, a book or whatever? Uh, well, there's a few things that made it a magazine and made me decide to make a magazine. Uh, I decided early on that there's, there's a big difference between a website and a print magazine. One of those is that people expect a website to be updated and they'll go to it at various different times to expect new and different stories. And also the navigation is in the hands of the, the user then. You click on different links that catch your eye. A magazine is much more a curated experience and I wanted to create something that would be a way of sharing the different stories but also their juxtaposition inside the magazine helps you think about what was going on all over the world at the same time. So I decided quite early on that I wanted this to be a complete project. And as for why a magazine rather than a book, um, I think people are more accustomed to uh, photography, illustration and graphic design to be more interesting inside a magazine than a book. So it seemed like a natural fit. Andrew Lasofsky, the editor and publisher of Stranded, which is available on paper and in pixels, with all proceeds going to the International Rescue Committee, a charity dedicated to helping people who are stranded in a more permanent manner all over the world. If you've been affected by any of the issues covered in this podcast, please go to wordmagazine.co.uk where you'll find hundreds of other lost souls. We'll be back next week. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.